Thanks so much to Pod Plays Podcast, bringing great stories, epic songs, audio dramas that are a movie for your ears. Within each story, you'll discover new and original music by Nashville's top hit songwriters. Visit podplays.com to find the stories, the app, and links to follow Pod Plays on all your favorite social media sites. All right, let's get me in, get me out. Yeah, I'm tired of looking at Rick already. This is the Marty Ray Project Chats, and I'm Marty Ray, one of the hosts of this podcast. You might know me from a beard video, a prank call, a rap song turned acoustic cover, or hopefully one of my original albums. And I'm Chris Wallen. You might know me from, where would they know me from again? You might know Chris from number one hit songs like Don't Blink by Kenny Chesney and Something to Be Proud of by Montgomery Gentry. Whether you know either one of us or not, I bet you're going to have fun here. Welcome to the project. Download, subscribe, and rate, whether you love it or not. Sound supplied by Roadcaster Pro. He beat a drug addiction, became a radio guy. When you hear him talk, you can see how. And then he became Taylor Swift's manager. He actually retired from being Taylor Swift's manager. Who in their right mind would ever do that? I don't know why, but we'll find out. Now he's a writer, a top music biz podcaster, and manager for the masses. Well, let's find out exactly what Rick Barker is going through his has going through his mind when he turns down a contract to no longer be Taylor Swift's manager. Welcome to the show, my friend. Thank you, my brother. I appreciate it. We start every show with a fast five. Okay. We ask you five quick questions. All right. And we get five answers. They're usually not quick. I was going to say, do they have to be quick? So <laughs> they're usually not. All right. If you could force everyone in the world to follow one rule for a day, what would it be? Love your neighbor as thyself. Hey, that's a good one. Nice. That's a good one. Now, what would you really do? <laughs> Slap them. No, I'm just kidding. Every rule. They pay me a dollar, everyone. <laughs> Every time. Who'd play you in a movie about you? Matthew McConaughey. <laughs> hey, right, I can wish. All right, right, all right. Everybody tells me I sound like him, but I just, yeah. I said, well, nobody ever tells me that I look like him. That's the problem. <laughs> They're like, everybody told you you sound like Matthew. Like, dang, yeah, nobody ever told me I look like him. Yeah, they're yeah. like, you sound just yeah. like him. Yeah. Well, like a, a young Sylvester Stallone would have been good, you yeah. know? You could see that, right? I could see that. Okay. 100%. Yeah, yeah. But, you know, you in, 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 in Hollywood, that sounded very close. Yeah, they can that make was scary. It, yeah, they can make us look anything. If When we're going to do just a podcast, just an audio only, and I'm going to have Sylvester Stallone on the show, and it'll just be you doing the voice. Yo, Adrian. Is that all you can do? In here? That's it. You know, <laughs> That's it. That's all you, I can you know, Marty. You know, Marty. When I when I was like coming to the uh, factory today, and I, I couldn't find anywhere to park. I'm in a hybrid, for goodness sakes. I, I guess that's all I got. You kind of trailed off there. It's kind of almost sounded like after an Arab Adrian. For a yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. After Adrian. <laughs> after Adrian, it started sounding like an Arab. Yeah, people people yeah. are like, I thought Sylvester Stallone was American. I thought yeah. he was an American. <laughs> that's so weird. Uh, if no animals idea. could talk, if animals could talk, which one would be the rudest? The dogs. Dogs? Dogs would be the rudest. More rude than a cat? Yeah, cats are quiet. Dogs got their nose up into everything right now. So if a dog would really be able to tell you how you smell and how you taste, that would be pretty gosh darn rude. A, a dog would, would, I just can't see a dog being rude. They That's love my, you so hey, much. Marty, Marty, it's my answer to my question. I want you to answer cat right now. <laughs> I, Marty, I'd say cats. That's a good, yeah, yeah. I agree Man, with that. We'll cut that. Yeah, cats. We'll cut that, yeah. we'll cut that in <laughs> <Yeah>. perfectly. 
Oh, Rick, hold on. I forgot to give you the answers to the question. <laughs> hey, it's gonna. I want to. I want to uh, put in my voice when he says when he says dog. I'm gonna go cats and for every <laughs> every every question. The answer is gonna be yeah. 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 That's good. All right. What's the weirdest thing you've seen in someone's home? The weirdest thing I've seen in someone's home. Mm-hmm. You know what? I I don't have a quick answer for that. All Make right. something up. I don't give a crap. Uh, a Marty Ray Project CD. That is weird. Yeah. Man. Now, let me tell you what the actual answer is. Okay. Yes, please. <laughs> you ready? <laughs> what would be the worst buy one, get one free sale ever? Don't say a Marty Ray Project CD. No, I won't. I've already used that answer. Yeah, I've already used that answer. It came up at the right thing. The worst buy one, get one? The worst buy one, get one free sale. See, these are the things you should have sent to me. Uh <laughs> No, it's supposed to be on the spur of the moment. All right. Uh, see, I'm going gross right now, and I don't want to say it because it can come back you to get me. You got to say it. No, I can't. <laughs> Give us a hint of what you're it's talking a, about. It's and used, Chris will say it, it. It's used, and it's a hygiene product. exactly what you're yes. talking about. Yeah, I, well, I want to say it. A hygiene product. Feminine. Oh, I see. Yeah. The worst buy one, get one would be... See, everybody has different things. Like, if somebody doesn't like chocolate, they could say chocolate. If somebody doesn't like, and whoever doesn't like chocolate should not be listening to the show right now. But there's certain things, though, that no matter if you like it. Give me it or your not. answer. Let me ask you, hey, Marty, give me the worst buy one, get one. Because you thought of these questions. I want to hear. Give me your answer, and then I can feed off of that. It's a co write right now, buddy. It's yeah, a co write. Yeah, I like this. This is, this is good. He's flipping it on me. Yeah. I like it. What, what's your answer? Ask me again. Marty, what would be the worst buy one, get one? A Marty Ray Project CD. <laughs> I've already used that answer. Man. <laughs> so I, don't want to give one, I don't want to give one away. I want them to buy every one of them. That's right. But think yeah. think about that from the from the from me. Think about I'm getting these no, questions I, that I the understand. guy asking the questions can't even answer. How do you expect I, I, me to answer? I didn't I didn't I didn't ask her for myself. I didn't finish high school, brother. I'm trying. I am really it could have trying been, right now. It could have been anything. But what what would you say right now? Buy one get one. the worst buy one the get worst one buy free. one get one Marty Ray Project CD <laughs> and Man, if you act so now, sync right now I know right we're so did we just become best friends I think we did oh hey, my god anybody listening to this DM me on my Instagram Rick, at Rick Barker Music <laughs> at Rick Barker Music and tell me what your worst buy one get one would be I just really don't have an answer and I don't. I don't have an answer for the rudest thing I've ever seen in somebody's. What was it? The weirdest thing in the house? See, that's the problem is you're you're hearing different words on different. Yeah, questions. that's my life, yeah. by the way. No, the rudest thing. He said the rudest thing I've ever seen in someone's house. <laughs> now, that's just rude. Yeah, that's the Marty Ray Project. CD. Yeah, no, somebody else's wife. Yeah, somebody else's wife or something like There's that. There's a poster of Marty Ray Project. He goes, no, that's rude. <laughs> that yeah. is so rude. That is rude. All right, let's get out of this. Come on. <laughs> Come on. We're st- this is the whole show right here. Oh, yeah. We're, we're staying we're right done. We're actually almost done. Really? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, yep. we, yeah we just get people in asking those questions and let them that's leave. It. <laughs> so, yeah. Now. You beat an addiction, and I don't know what you. I didn't know till today. I don't think what yeah. you were addicted to. What were you addicted to? Crack cocaine. You were addicted to crack. Yes. Now, how did that come about? So I grew up. In, I I'm a child of the '80s. I'm at the at the recording of this. I'm 53 years old, soon to be 54 years old. So when when my parents my parents divorced, I went to three different high schools. So sophomore year, junior year, the Christians and the Jocks took me, and I lived in Muscle Shoals, Alabama. Played soccer, went to church. Moved to California my senior year, and the stoners 
took me in. And a lot of the, I, I was, the type of student I was is it was either A's or eligible. There was nothing in the middle for me. If I liked it, I got great grades. And if I didn't like it, I did just enough to stay eligible to play sports. Well, that didn't transfer real well from Alabama to California. So there were some classes that wouldn't transfer over that I'd have to take again. Plus, I slept through Algebra 1 my sophomore year and failed it. So when they wouldn't transfer, they wanted me to come back and take electives. And I told my dad, I said, there's no way. I said, I'm not going to come back here and take basket weaving. At the time, he was a stuntman. I thought I was going to go into the movie industry. And I said, I don't need my high school diploma for this. What were you going to do? Stunts. You were going to do stunts? Yeah, I was going to do stunts. Okay. And I had a chance to work on a couple films with him, enjoyed it, uh, but I didn't feel I needed a high school diploma for that. And we sat down, did the pros and the cons. Well, instead of going into the music business, I got invited to a strip bar on my 18th birthday. And, you know, one of the girls was like, oh my gosh, I love your voice. Would you announce my set? And I'm like, yeah, I can do what that guy's doing easily. So I did it. They offered me a job. And my dad's like, you don't want to be around that type of environment. And I'm like, Dad, I'm 18. I know everything right now. What are you, what are you saying to me? I'm getting paid at the time. This is 1985. I'm getting paid a thousand dollars a week cash under the table to work around strippers. How is so, that not a good opportunity at 18 years old? But you're so you're saying you were just announcing the strippers coming on. Yeah, and, that, yeah. and you were making a thousand dollars a week. Well, you're the announcer. You're the bouncer you're kind right, of a combination right. of everything at that point but you uh, also get tips from the girl so you what was get the name a, of this strip club uh which one how many did you work for about six yeah wow. oddball cabaret star garden a lot of them out in that van nuys area of california do they have good buffets no a lot but, of them have buffets during the day i don't know i haven't been to one in probably 25 years yeah. You should you should maybe try to get your job back. Well, the problem is is that that's not the world I'm in anymore. Now I'm a daddy. <laughs> now I got a baby girl. But what ended up happening to answer your question, uh Marty Ray Project CD, uh to answer your question is uh being in that environment, I started dating one of the girls and she they ended up when she broke up with me, I was heartbroken. And a guy came and he handed me some cocaine and he's like, "Hey, just try this. It'll, you know, make you feel better." So I tried it and it didn't make me feel better. He goes, no, he says, if you really want to feel better, you need to cook it. So they rocked up crack cocaine. I took a hit and I chased that dragon for almost four years, ended up homeless on the streets, uh, was dealing, was doing a lot of things I'd never wish on anyone. And then on April 4th, 1989, got on my knees and I said, God, let me die. I can't do this anymore. I was so, I was sick and tired of being sick and tired. I found Christ as a child. So I, I just figured he'd be like, upset. And if I said, let me die, he would, he'd be, be ashamed. And he didn't. And I woke up the next day, haven't had a craving since that time, uh, ended up having to learn some more lessons, realized early on that drugs and alcohol are, but the addiction, the problem is me. And then I needed to fix that. So there's still some humility in my space. There's a, jo- a jail story in my story. There's three DUIs in jail? my store, four months. Yeah. County jail. Four drugs? Uh, no, actually for driving on a suspended license. I was the oh. stupid guy that went to jail sober. I never got caught <clears throat> selling drugs. I never got caught doing any of that stuff. But uh, after I got sober, uh, I realized, well, if I'm if I'm not drinking, obviously I can drive. You know, I was on the radio. I did my whole radio career in Santa Barbara. So I'm on the radio every day. I'm, I'm doing a lot for the community. Uh, real, real felt that I was better than everyone else just because of the stature that I felt that I had. And then three times violating my probation, driving on a suspended license, I found a judge that didn't think as highly of me as I did. And uh, it, it was probably, I tell people, it was the best 
worst experience of my life was going to jail. I got arrested on the radio in October, and I spent a Thanksgiving, and I spent On the radio? Yeah. Now, tell us, before we go any further, I want you to tell people how you went from a drug addiction and announcing in a strip club to the radio. Like, how did that work? My goal, I always always loved music. I always loved music. That's all I ever wanted to do was be on the radio. I used to record on a cassette, the countdowns, and not only did I get great music, but I would always want to be Casey Kasem and Rick Dees and those guys. I, I loved music, but I never had the talent or the discipline to learn an instrument and practice something over and over. And when we moved to Muscle Shoals, Alabama, I uh, went to school with uh, Rick Hall's kids who ran Fame Recording Studios. So I got a chance to be around that part of the Muscle Shoals music scene. When my mom moved us from California to Alabama, uh, she was dating Roger Clark, who was a drummer. And he's he's a great was a great session drummer. He passed a couple years ago, and he's mentioned in the documentary and one of the top 100 drummers of all times and things like that. So I'd always been around music, but I started de- uh, working as a disc jockey uh, when I was in high school back in Alabama. So it was something that stuck with me. So as soon as I got sober, I heard an ad on the radio station, and it says, do your friends say that you have a voice for radio? Come to the Columbia School of Broadcasting. And so they had this open house for this Columbia School of Broadcasting. So I went and realized that it was kind of a scam at the mm-hmm. time. And uh, Marty, mm-hmm. you know me well enough to know that I may not necessarily always say the most popular things in the room. So I asked the guy, I said, if you guys are so good, why have I never heard of you? And why aren't you on the radio? Which wasn't the most popular thing to ask. But I'd heard him talk about internships. So I went and got my internship. I said, I can do this on my own. And I called Power 106 and Pirate Radio at the time. This is in L.A. This is in L.A. KMAT, you know, the Mighty Met uh, and Kiss FM. And I ended up getting a job at Kiss FM answering phones. And that's how I got started. And then I met... Uh, I was driving the van around, giving people money, being a little bit on the radio there. And then I was at a Nelson video shoot, uh, Matthew and Gunner, Ricky Nelson's kids. Oh, yeah. And I met some people from Santa Barbara and they said that they had an opening coming up and would I like to apply for this job. And I'd never done anything like that before. So I said, sure. So I went back to all the guys at Kiss. I said, they want an air check. What's an air check? They're like, well, it's this thing that lets them know what you sound like on the radio. I said, but I've never been on the radio. They're like, well, we'll help you create one. So we created one, and I got hired and moved to Santa Barbara. What was the air check? Do, do it right here. No, the air check is what you would say. So it's like, you know, right now you're going to hear from the Marty Ray Project. This is his song, Unchanted, you know, or whatever. It's like it's the, it lets them hear what you sound like talking up songs. It lets them hear what you sound like reading radio commercials. Did you over sell it when you did it thinking that that's how you know because everybody the, the, back then they had these radio voices rocking and rolling popping and popping yeah, so these guys that's, did you do it like that well here's what's funny when you ask that story so the gulf war started and i was just answering the telephones and all of a sudden saddam hussein u.s starts dropping bombs all the radio stations are going to news they're calling in their news guys to come in and they come to me and they're like look Scott St. James can't get here for an hour. We want you to go watch the news, write down everything that they're saying, and you get to come in and be the news guy. And I'm like, son of a gun, here's my chance. And I came in and I started talking about the news and all this stuff, and I absolutely sucked. They call them pukers because it sounds like they're going to puke whenever they're talking. (laughs) They love my enthusiasm, but I was terrible on the air. But that was the first lesson that I learned is be yourself. 
Don't be the next someone else. Don't try to copy. So there's a lot of life lessons that I've learned, and that was it. But the next time that I got on the radio, I was just me, which was great. So I ended up in Santa Barbara, got an opportunity, uh, started moving up the ranks really well, and then I realized that I didn't want to chase a job. It was at that time you would work in a small market for a couple of years, and then you'd go to a media market for a couple of years. So I'd go Santa Barbara to, let's say, Fresno to – San Francisco to whatever you were always trying to move up and chasing a job and I'm how like, far did you get up the ladder I didn't chase I decided that I could be a big fish in a small pond and I did my whole entire radio career in Santa Barbara because after I got sober I wanted to work with kids to teach them that your past does not define your future I'm living proof of it and I just didn't want to chase I felt I could have more impact as a believer, as a human in a smaller market, which was the best thing I ever did because I met my wife there. I created opportunities for myself there. I, I did three jobs to stick around. Had I chased, I don't know that I'd be sitting in this room with you right now because you probably wouldn't everything be. happens for a reason. Yeah, I ended up in 2001. So I did rock. I did pop. Uh, I did talk radio. We were getting bought and sold by all these different places. I actually got to work for one of my heroes, David Perry, who was a rock jock down at uh, KMET, ended up buying a radio station in Santa Barbara, and I went to work for David. David has played such a pivotal role in my life when I was in jail and needed a job to get out of jail. Even though I had quit his radio station and went on to become a competitor, he offered me a $5 an hour job. So when I qualified for work furlough, which just basically means you leave the jail during the day, but you had to stay there every night during a certain part of your uh, sentence, I would ride a ride a bicycle down the hill to this radio station, and for five bucks an hour, I answered phones and I made coffee. For at the time, I when I got arrested on the radio, I was the number one morning show in Santa Barbara. So when you say you got arrested on the radio, yeah, they the cops came in while you <laughs> yeah. were on live on air. So here's what happened. So uh, if anybody is listening to this right now and you have something in your mouth, go ahead and swallow because you might spit up on yourself. But <laughs> my radio name was Ricky Suave. <laughs> Ricky Suave. But here's how it Ricky happened. Here's Suave. how it happened. When I was at Kiss FM, Man. somebody called to request that song Rico Suave and they said it wrong. So Hollywood Hamilton, the jock, started busting up laughing. They're, they go, Yeah, I'd like to hear Ricky Suave. He's like, You mean Rico Suave? She goes, No, Ricky Suave. He goes, Ricky Suave? She goes, Yeah. He, he goes, Okay, I'll play that for you. He pushes the little intercom. He's like, Rick, get in here. We got your name. What do you mean? He goes, you're going to Santa Barbara. You don't want to use your real name. That's why radio people use fake names, because back then we had these things called phone books. And you want to be in the phone book so your friends can find you when they come to town. But you don't want these kids showing up at your right. house when you're because in a, in a radio. Sometimes that's the most famous person in the town is the person you hear right. on the radio. So he said, we got your radio name. I said, what is it? He goes, Ricky Suave. And I'm like, oh, crap. So it kind of <laughs> stuck with me for a while. So when I got to Santa Barbara, that was my on-air name. So when I, I told you I got three driving on a suspended license. So the last time, so I get the ankle monitor one time. I get a suspended sentence one time. And then finally, the judge is like, dude, you do not get it. No means no. What makes you feel that you're any better than anybody else that comes in here? And he sentenced me to 11 months. Now, here's the interesting part about that. The guy that sunk a boat in the Santa Barbara Harbor with drugs on it only got six months. I drive on a suspended license for the third time. He was going to make an example out of me. And I'm like, okay, so now I have to go away for 11 months. That means I'll probably have to do four to five months. How do I go to my job and say, hey, can I have the next four to five months off so I can go 
do my jail time. So I don't know why I felt this way, but I felt that it would just magically disappear. So on the date that I was supposed to turn myself into jail, I didn't do it. I, I ran. I went to San Diego to see if I could get a job down there. And a guy ran my background check, Mike Halloran, one of the amazing guys. He says, uh, you know that when you try to come work for a bigger company, we, we run background checks, right? I'm like, no, I wasn't really aware of that. He says, yeah. He says, you've got some stuff you need to take care of in Santa Barbara. You need to go get that taken care of. So I went back to Santa Barbara got on another radio station and I was on the air for six months with a warrant out for my arrest because the sheriff's department are the ones who issue the warrants. And my name is, was Richard Barker. You know, that's what the warrant was under was my real name. So my, I was playing in the charity basketball games with the fire department versus the police department. And my buddy who was a cop (laughs) would show up every morning and have coffee at the radio station. And we would do this. And then one day, it's October 25th, 1996, or 1995, excuse me, and I hear the squelch of a walkie-talkie that's not his, and it's coming from down the hall. And at that time, everything just kind of sunk, and the sheriffs walk in, and there was a gentleman, uh, his name was Mark Ward. Mark used to be the disc jockey at the rock station that I had worked at, so we had this thing called Forefathers Day, and he knew <clears throat> what my real name was, so... When the warrant list came out, he comes up and it says Richard Barker. And he's like, why haven't you guys picked him up yet? He had just got handed that job of warrants. It's like, I guess it's a rotation that the sheriffs do. So he gets it. He looks up. He says, why haven't you guys picked up this guy? They said, we don't know where to find him. And he goes and he turns on the radio and he goes, he's there every day. He says, I'll take care of this. So he came in, picked me up. And it was at that point that I knew I wasn't going to get out. And uh, at that time, I was... I was, uh, I don't want to say that I was sober because I wasn't working the steps. I wasn't going to meetings. I wasn't praying. I wasn't doing a lot of stuff. Did you go from the crack to like alcohol? Well, what happened was, is I decided, I never felt that I had a drinking problem because I used to drink so I could drive. I was so high. So I knew that cocaine was a problem. I never thought alcohol was a problem. So when I, part of, part of my story is when I, Asked God to let me die, and he didn't, and I woke up. I walked 23 miles to my dad's house. I left everything behind to walk to try to get a fresh start. When I showed up at my dad's house, I mean, I've got hair longer than Chris's. Uh, I look like death worn over. You know, it's like I I weighed about 118 pounds. Right now, I've got a quarter panel, a butt cheek, and a leg that weighs about 118 pounds. But that was my whole body size at that point. And when I knocked on the door... And I started crying. I'm like, Dad, I want to come home. It's like I, I, they hadn't seen me in two years. The only thing my dad ever says when we talk about this, you know, and I've been sober over 29 years now, is he's like, I, I, I respect the fact that you didn't put us through it. You just disappeared. We didn't know whether you were dead or alive, but we didn't have to physically witness it and see it. So when I showed up hmm. and I asked him to live, can I stay there? I need help. He said no, because uh, my stepbrothers and sisters, he didn't want it in the house. But the condition was is that I went to AA. And the reason that I wanted to go to AA is because I wanted to hear the stories of the guys and the gals who lost everything. At Cocaine Anonymous meetings back in the 80s, all they do is glorify stuff. You weren't going to tell me you smoked more than me or had more money than me. Or I, I knew all those stories. I didn't want to hear because there were some good times. I, for Everybody says, was it all bad? No, there was a lot of fun. I'm lucky to live to tell about it, but there was a lot of good times. The majority was bad, but there was there was a lot of interesting times, but I didn't want to hear that. I wanted to hear the struggle. I wanted to hear the guy who lost his family. I wanted to hear that story. So I stayed sober for a year. And then 
I went from being an intern at Kiss to getting my first opportunity in Santa Barbara. And my my sponsor says to me, he goes, and I'd been to Santa Barbara one time because they have these uh, these like AA conferences where you get to a I mean, it's so it's it's a blast. It was a lot of fun. So I knew Santa Barbara. He says, here's what I want you to do. When you get to Santa Barbara, I want you to find the Alano Club. Now, the Alano Club in most towns is where they have the AA meetings every day, all, all hours of the day. You can go and there's an AA meeting there. So What's an I, Alano Club? It's a, it's just a, it's a facility where you have AA meetings all day. That's all it's for. That's really a lot of what it's for. It's just a safe place for alcoholics to hang out. So there's a meeting at 6, there's a meeting at 10, there's a meeting at noon. So it's called the Alano, A-L-A-N-O, Alano Club. And a lot of towns have them. So when I get to the Santa Barbara, I didn't find the Alano Club. I found that I was 23 years old, single, on the radio in a town with three colleges. And I didn't find the Alano Club. I found Zello's. I found these bars. Now, I wasn't drinking when I was going into these bars, but I was setting myself up for failure. I was setting myself up. It was going to get real close. So it was the Mike Tyson fight, the fight that he bit Evander Holyfield's ear off. <laughs> Somebody hands me a draft beer. It says, hey, would you like a beer? I don't know why. I said, sure. I just grab it and I take it and I drank it. Didn't even think anything about it. And then, of course, they say, hey, you want another one? Of course. I take it. I drink another one. They hand me one more. So I had three beers. Did you like it? I don't remember. All I remember is that I realized, holy crap, I got to get to the radio station. I go on the air in two hours. So I start. I left that place. I start driving. And in Santa Barbara, there's a lot of one-way streets. And I'd only been there for like three weeks. So all of a sudden, I turn down and realize it's one way. And I come back. And the lights come on. And all of a sudden, this cop pulls up right behind me. And he says, have you been drinking? And the typical answer is, oh, just a couple. He, he gets asked me to get out of the car. I do the check. I fail the test. And I look up. And it's right in front of the Alano Club. I got my, I found the Alano Club. I just wow. found it the wrong way. Wow. Now, is that how your driver's license got suspended? So that was the first time. So then what happened was, is once you get uh, a suspended license, uh, I ended up uh, – I did. I didn't do any time on that one. That was a wave away, and then I, I I just kept drinking for whatever reason. And I never drank a lot. That was the funny part is I never I wasn't that type of drinker. It's just whenever I drank, I did things that a sober Rick would not do, like drive. Uh, so one night we're working at a thing. I come. I make a left. I'm not supposed to make a left. Cop pulls me over. I end up getting a DUI inside the radio station van uh, because I drove down to. Uh, uh, Agora Hills. So from Santa Barbara to Agora Hills, I got invited to see everybody at Kiss FM. So of course, I'm going to be a big shot. I'm going to show up in the station van. I'm going to be that guy. Uh, and driving back, I got pulled over for speeding uh, and ended up doing 17 days for that one. Uh, thought I could hide it, so I get arrested. So it's hard to be it's hard to be anonymous when you're doing a sobriety test on the side of the road with a radio station van with the call letters on the side of it. For whatever reason, I thought that I could just get out of jail in the morning, go get the van, get back, and nobody would ever know anything happened. I didn't realize that they send a notice to the person who's the registered vehicle owner. So my program director at the time at this radio station calls me in and he says, uh, hey, is there anything that you want to tell me? Note to self, if anyone ever asks you, is there anything that you want to tell them? Know that they already have the answer. Right, right. <laughs> know that they're giving you an opportunity. Common sense. To come clean. 
And I said, no, absolutely not. He says, really? He says, no. He said, there's nothing that happened that you want to tell me about right now. I said, absolutely not. I would lie till death at that point. And he said, well, he says, I got something here that says something did. And because you didn't come clean with me, the instructions that I was given from the general manager were, if you cop to it and came clean, that we would put you on probation, but you would still have your job and you would get to be able. And because I lied and kept lying and kept lying, I ended up losing my job. And then I got another DUI with only one beer because I had measurable alcohol. Santa Barbara is such a small town. I got pulled over. Two of my three DUIs were pulled over by the same cop. Really? Officer Ella. Yeah, he's mm. we've friends to this day. Uh, and then I did 17 days. So that was March 17th, 1992. I had to turn myself in to do a 17 days. And that's my sobriety birthday. I chose at that point uh, that I said, obviously, God's telling me because I knew I had a, Like I said, I knew I had a drug problem. But I didn't realize I had an alcohol problem. But if you get three DUIs in a month, I'm thinking that's a problem. Yeah, it's a problem. Uh, yeah. So, I want to go back real quick to something. Okay. I, I still don't I still don't know 100% if – were you live on the air when they came into yes. arrest you? Yes. So what happened then when, when they – did people hear that on the – Yes. In the car? So then when you left, when they took you out, what were you saying when they – I didn't say anything because – Were you saying, no, officer, I, no, nothing? I, no, I, 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 I had surrendered – emotionally at that point I knew that there was no getting out of this one it was like everything sunk in my feeling I, I think I fainted too did somebody come in and, and sit down and go okay Rick Rick a Ricky Suave is no longer gonna be here's what to- here's what happened so they gave me a chance to call my boss Eddie Eddie showed up and that was it so then what happens is that night on the news Debbie Davison, never forget it. Money. Here's a, here's an interesting story too. So when you get to the jail, so I was in there over the weekend. So I get arrested on a Friday. So there's Saturday, Sunday during the processing time. If you're a nonviolent offender, you can move over to what's called the honor farm where you're under and you have a, a gig. You kind of do this thing. Everyone at the honor farm starts in the chow hall. That's where everyone's job is, whether it be cleaning dishes, picking up trays or whatever like that. So all of a sudden, I'm, I'm coming through, I'm working in the chow hall. We come back after work. They walk us all in together and it was Monday night football. So I had a football TV up inmates are watching this. And I walk by and Debbie Davison says tonight at 11, we'll find out why Santa Barbara's number one DJ is no longer on the air and what happened. And they pop up my picture. And then these guys are like, what do they do? I remember this guy who's is a Mexican guy. He's like, essay. That's the dude from the chow hall. That's Ricky Suave. Ricky Suave. <laughs> so all of a sudden, I get this attention that I don't want. All of right. a sudden, I get this attention, and that's when I realized that I am no better than any other human being, period. No matter what I thought of myself, I was waking up when I was told to wake up. I was allowed to use the bathroom when I was told I could use the I was as just. I was as equal as every single person in that room. The difference was is that for three and a half years, I didn't drink. But I wasn't sober. I was dry. So that's what I tell people. When I tell my story and I share my story, it's like, dude, I was so dumb. I went to jail three and a half years sober because I thought I was better than somebody else. And then that's when I always say, whenever I think I'm better than someone else, God puts the humble pill on me. And that was it. So when I went into jail at that point, it was it was devastating 
to me, but I knew I wasn't getting out. So I said, I'm going to make the best out of this. I had, I was a two and a half pack a day cigarette smoker at that time. I chose that this something good was going to come out of this four months. So I stopped smoking. Unfortunately, I became addicted to chocolate covered raisins and the commissary. So I gained quite a few pounds when I came out, but that was okay. I started attending AA meetings when I was in there, which is where I met my sponsor. I started helping guys get their GED. I just, it's like whatever I could do to be a service, that's what I did. I became humble and I'm so grateful for that experience. Now, when I got out, that's when my life changed completely. That's when all of a sudden I started attending meetings. That's when I ended up meeting my wife. Uh, my AA sponsor, Rodney, was funny. He knew soccer was a part of my story. So the very first thing I did when I got out, I got out, I spent four months there. So the very first thing I did was he invited me to come have dinner with him and his family. And everybody was like, dude, you'd have called a girl. I'm like, no, I called my sponsor. I, I, I went straight there and he said something to me that was pretty funny. He said, listen, he says, uh, he introduced me to his daughter, Lindsay he said, Lindsay, uh, they need a soccer coach. He said, didn't you say you coached? I'm like, yeah. He says, well, they're 12 years old, 12 year old girls team. They call themselves the Miss Americas. That's what they felt about themselves. And they'd already run off like three coaches and the dad who had agreed to finish out the season. There were only three games left threw out his back. What the Miss Americas didn't realize is that I needed them to build back my self-esteem as much as they needed a coach. So I ended up with the Miss Americas. The three games turned into be a whole summer because we went from last to third. And I ended up getting asked to coach a girls high school soccer team. One of the older girls was getting ready to start high school and they were looking for a coach. And it was there that I, I spent two years coaching girls soccer. I say to everyone that was God preparing me for Taylor because I speak teenage female. I don't know if it's a blessing or a curse, <laughs> but he was preparing me for this opportunity that was going to come my way. So in 2001, right after uh, the World Trade Center, I was asked to build a country radio station in Santa Barbara. And I'm like, okay, I grew up in Alabama and I knew who Johnny Cash was. I figured I was as qualified as anybody else in California to do this, but I was the guy that always made fun of country music. Well, you know, play a song backwards, get your truck back, your girl back, your dog mm -hmm. back, you know, that kind of thing. All of a sudden, I started hearing songs. All of a sudden, I started hearing lyrics. All of a sudden, I started hearing these stories. And we were in a different time at that place. Plus, I also lived in a town where a hit songwriter from Nashville lived, Marv Green. And Marv wrote, Marv wrote Amazed and boatloaded George Strait. And oh, yeah. it seems like he, he hangs out Tim McGraw's house. And whenever Tim wakes up needing songs, Marv's there to give it to him because he <laughs> seems to get a Tim McGraw cut every couple of years. So Marv was in this town. And I just, I fell in love with the music. I, I was like, these are true stories. These are things that are really happening right now. So as I built this country radio station. What was it called? Crazy Country, K-R-A-Z. And that was in Santa Barbara. Santa Inez, right above Santa Barbara. So right above Santa Barbara in the wine country, if you ever saw the movie Sideways, that's where that took place. So I, I'm, I'm there I'm uh, every morning. I'm, I'm doing this radio station. And then all of a sudden I get invited to be on a reporter channel at the time. It was called Gavin. So I would report my songs to the charts, which then meant that the record companies had a group of people that were to build relationships with program directors like me. So I started meeting artists. I started getting to meet people at the radio stations. And what was funny was at the end of the radio tour, 
I would be the last stop. So they would go like L.A., Ventura, Santa Barbara, and then they would stay all night in Santa Barbara. And the next day they'd go San Luis Obispo, you know, Sacramento. They were they'd make these runs. They were calling radio tour runs. They would just bring the artist up and through there. So I started asking questions like, why don't we ever see them play? Why can't if I'm the last stop, why can't we do a show? Why can't we do something? And I would started hearing things like, well, they only have one song. And I came from the rock world. I'm like, wait a minute. You guys signed somebody to a record deal that's only got one song? They're like, yeah, well, this is we're like a singles bay. I said, okay, uh, well, what if I put them up at a club? Well, no one will know who they are. I said, but if I play them, it's only unfamiliar if you don't hear it. If I play it, they're like, well, we're not on the charts yet. I'm like, I don't play the songs that are on the charts. I play what my people want to hear. I don't care what somebody in Oklahoma City wants. I'm not in Oklahoma City. So I people started seeing I was different. They're like, man, this dude, he'll play. If the song fits and it makes sense and you got a story, I would play independent from independent labels. It's a different now when we say independent artist than what we said yeah. 10 years ago. Yeah. An independent artist just meant they were on, weren't on a label. But I'd also... We had a really good run in Santa Barbara uh, with music in the 90s. We had Toad the Wet Sprocket. We had Ugly Kid Joe. We had Snot. We had Dishwalla. We had, you know, so I was part of a project called Santa Barbara's Unsigned Heroes, Volume 1 and 2. So I, I, I knew the rock world. I knew the pop side of things. The country thing was still new to me. I said, well, if I play it and I know they're coming, I'll play it all day and I'll get people excited about it and they'll show up. They're like, all right, that's interesting. See if you can pull it off for us. So I did for a couple of these artists. And then I said, hey. Did it work? Oh, hell yeah, it worked. That's what got me into. Yeah, I created the first ever radio tour where artists got paid. So what I did was is I contacted all these other radio stations. And I was a, I was just a program director in Market 200. And I called Nate Deaton in San Jose and said, hey, because in California, it was hard for us to get artists out because it was just so expensive. It's like and touring and everything. It's like they didn't come through that often. So I said, if I can consistently get us a, an artist that's at the bottom in the 30s and the 40s, would you be willing to find fifteen hundred dollars, three hotel rooms and dinner? They're like, absolutely. So they would go because what happened was, is we would go to the sales departments, the program directors. They don't make the decisions. It's the sales department. Radio makes money from advertising. So they would go find a venue. So I called KUZZ in Bakersfield. I had San Jose. I had Los Angeles. I had Ventura. I had my station. I went and befriended who, quote unquote, would have been considered my competition in the market above me. Uh and and we became friends so you could hit all these different markets. So I come back. I said, I've got all these radio stations where an artist can make $7,500. They're like, there's no way you got radio to pay. So they flew me out to Nashville. I come out to Nashville. I share with them what's going on. They absolutely love it. Put me up at Ruth's Chris. I'm walking into every VP of promotions office. I'm meeting the president of the labels. I'm meeting the Mike Dungans and the Joe Galanis and the Scott Borchettas and all these people. And I go back to uh, to Santa Barbara. Nobody calls. Nothing. I'm like, hey, I appreciate the trip. I said, but what's the deal? And they said, well, this right and now it's May. And I said, well, right now we don't have uh, promotion people to go out with these artists because it's the summer and the major artists are on tour, so they're running the meet and greets and handling their radio station relationships. In the middle of every show. We do what's called, uh, why would they do that? Don't. All right. Well, okay. Go ahead. No. 
We're doing it. Marty Ray Project CD. <laughs> We're not asking any questions. Oh, no, okay. No, You're safe. Okay. This is just a simple little weird fact. All right. And that, then and then when we finish, I'm going to talk about why would they do that because those were the questions I did that showed me some real inadequacies about the industry. Now go ahead. You're all time. right. <laughs> Walmart asked its employees to donate food, clothes, and other items to the needy Walmart employees at their store. This is real. <laughs> this is real. This is really happens. Almost nothing that comes out of your mouth is real. That's why we're scared right now. <laughs> That's a true thing okay. that Walmart okay. asked their so employees. So why would they do that? Because people were hungry and they needed clothes and they needed food. Walmart asked their own employees. Yeah. Because they have employees. Not every employee is. Wal- wait a minute. Walmart has employees? Yeah. Did so you know really? That? Yeah. But Walmart asked their own employees. Yes. They have employees here yes. that are struggling. Yes. They know it. Yes. And they asked their employees that the other employees to give them food and and yeah. and, and clothes and yeah. items. You think that's okay? Well, not everybody is in the same situation as everybody else. There may be an employee that also has a husband or a wife that works, and they're better off than some of the other Walmart employees. Yeah, but none of them are better off than Walmart. Yeah, multi-billion that, dollar company. That's the thing that I got. I was like. Oh, so so they they actually asked the other employees. Did they match not, it? No, they didn't match nothing. They they actually. Why are you a, getting political? They sent an email. It ain't political. <laughs> We're sitting here talking about great stories that how are going to affect the industry. And how is that political? Talking about Walmart. We don't know the whole story. We weren't there. They asked it, their employees. They may have had a matching fund. That ain't political. We ain't talking about politics. We're talking about a, 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 a major conglomerate. Yeah, but we don't know the whole story, Marty Ray. I know this right here. I know. I read Sam Walton's book. Great, congratulations. He was a great. He was a great fellow. <laughs> Good, and he wouldn't have stood for that. But you don't know the whole story because it could have been a matching funds. It could have said it wasn't though. I know that story because I just read it last night. Okay, so it must be true <laughs> if we read it. Must be true yeah, if it's well, on the internet. It. It, it, I'm not it's defending. Uh, listen, I'm, I'm just, not saying. Dude, I like you sound like you story. work for Walmart. Are I you hate it when my parents argue like this. I feel, <laughs> is it because of me? Yeah. It's because of me. No, it? what I look at it is a lot of companies and a lot of corporations will do matching funds. There's a lot of foundations that say if the employees raise $1,000, we'll match that $1,000. So that's why I yeah, said it's a matching This fund. wasn't charity. This wasn't them okay. saying, okay, you donated charity, we'll match it. That's different. This was literally them knowing the, even the even the people. Then, then if they're not matching it, it sucks. Move on. This no, has no, nothing to do with we're, anything that we're, no, talk- we're talking about. Walmart, the rest of the show now. <laughs> yeah, well, Walmart used to sell CDs, Man. so I guess we can get it back to the music if that's what I'm here for. <laughs> they don't. They never sold Marty Ray Project CDs. Yeah, because you came too late. No, yeah, yeah you came. They too sold late. a lot of Garth Brooks though. Yes, they did. And they sold a lot of Taylor Swift. He had a Garth Brooks was actually under contract. It was a massive contract. Yeah. With Walmart for years. Remember that? Nope. <laughs> You're not a radio guy. No, <laughs> I don't defend Walmart. Yeah. No, you do defend Walmart. I asked a question. You just defended Walmart. I said, was there matching funds? And I said, no. And you then said, that, well, it must be true because you read it on the internet. That's exactly no, what you What I'm like. saying is that if, if we know <laughs> the whole exactly story. Like. Is it not exactly his voice? That's what I said. Well, I'm just saying is you're like, I know the whole story. I read it. I did. But you're not there. That's the thing. We don't know. I don't know that in life today, we never know the whole story. <laughs> I know that they, the report, this, the they, report they even showed the, the email. Okay, it's a report. Where the store managers sent out an email 
saying thank you to all the people who donated that donated thank it's, you it's people not who where donated. you start it's where you end <laughs> yeah that's what they sent to them all right they didn't the email didn't say anything about we appreciate everybody and we're going to donate we're, we're going to help it walmart shouldn't need right there are other employees they're all getting paid the same money right so it don't make sense to me you see okay. what i'm saying if they said right. all store managers donate <laughs> that would make sense all right how that right. ended up in this conversation i, I have love no it. clue so it breaks the monotony up, Rick. But, but we were in the middle of a great story that I probably can't come back to because sure I did too many drugs in the 80s. Sure I can. may not remember where Rick, we are. I know you very well. <laughs> We've done this so many times already. I know you very well. You'll come right. right back into it. Now, tell me right now, you were talking about you were getting into the, going with the artist. They wanted somebody to go with the artist. No, I didn't got there yet. You just know no, the story. No, you were about to go there. But you were see, just said they were looking for somebody to go promotional to do promotional things no, with I the artist. I didn't. I you said. Didn't say that. I said I reached out and found out that they couldn't send anyone they, out because it was the summertime. I never got into that. I was going out. You no, just happen to know you, the story. No, you said that you talked to them and they said that we don't have anybody to go out with. Correct. Them. And I said, hold on, before you get into that, because I know where this is going. And now. Tell yeah. us where this was going. Okay. So you knew where it was going because you're right. I was going to volunteer to be the person to go out with them. So right. Marty and I have a relationship before this. So this is where, where this happened is that I was confused and I was discouraged for independent for the baby acts, as they call them here in Nashville, because here someone was good enough to get a record deal. They'd already put money into them to create music, and then they put them on hold because they didn't have enough people to be able to do this. And I'm like, then why don't I take them out? And they're like, you'd be willing to do it. I said, I built the relationship. So yes, I will. But that showed me in the industry that just because you get signed to a record label doesn't make you a priority Mm -mm. because a lot of artists think that's the case. Like, Hey, I got signed to the label. I'm the priority now. No, they weren't the priority. So when I came back and I called and they wouldn't give me anybody, I'm like, okay, this is just wrong. And then I got a phone call from Royce Risser, who's at MCA. And he said, listen, he said, we got this kid. He's got a song that's doing well in the Midwest, doing well in the South. He said, if we can break this song in California, we may have something here. I said, all right. He said, it's Josh Turner. And the song is called Long Black Train. Hmm. And I'm like, because I was already playing the song. And I'm like, oh my gosh, even I can't screw this up. I didn't even know that. Yep. So what happened was, is that he came out. I'd also worked out a deal with... uh that the artist could sell merch and keep a hundred percent of it. But I didn't realize that at the beginning stages of a lot of these artists career, they didn't have any merch. So what Josh did is he brought out the, the picture pads that the label had and he autographed them and sold them for five bucks. And he sold like 200 of these over this little tour that we did. So he came right. back to Nashville, made 7,500 bucks. He paid his guitar player. He had the picture thing. And then all of a sudden everybody's like, okay, there's, there's something that's going on here. So, I started taking out bands like Little Big Town, Sugarland as a trio, Scotty Emrick. So Scotty comes out. It's it's hard to get, and Scotty had had tons of Toby cuts at the yeah, time. I know Scotty well. Yeah. And uh, all of a sudden, Scott Borchetta, that's how I got on Scott Borchetta's radars. We took Jimmy Wayne. We had Scotty. We had all these people. But I took, I, uh, they said, Scotty doesn't have anything to sell. I said, what about all those little CDs that you send to the radio stations, the little singles? They're like, I said, what do you guys do when you're done with them? They're like, we throw them away. I said, ship them to me. Scotty was selling CDs that were going to be thrown away just because he signed them. Five bucks, five bucks, five bucks. 
Uh, real interesting Scotty Emmerich, Emmerich story. My wife is a huge Scotty fan. And when he showed up uh, to do the run, she had just had my son. And she didn't get to come to the show. And Scotty was going down to meet Toby at a Dodger game. And all of a sudden, they pull up to my house. And he said, listen, I want to play some songs for your wife before we leave. I know she's a big fan. So there's my wife holding my brand new son. And Scotty's in my living room playing a couple songs uh, for my wife as she's doing that. So it's just one of those things. But So as we continue doing those, it just got more and more and more. And then all of a sudden, different labels, relationships and things. And that's when Scott reached out and said, hey, I'm starting. Speaking of Toby, he says, Toby and Scott had two labels at the time, Show Dog and Big Machine. And Scott ran the promotion team. Toby was kind of the funding of the deal. And they were about to separate. And he said, I'd love for you to come be a West Coast regional for Big Machine Records. And I said, why me? You can hire anybody you want in Nashville. And he said, look, he says, I'm starting this label with uh, Jack Ingram, regional act out of Texas that nobody's heard of. Uh, this 15-year-old, or not, they didn't. They knew of Jack. He was just a regional act. And this 15-year-old that no one heard of, Taylor Swift, and then Daniel Peck. Now, at this time, was Taylor on RCA? Because she was with RCA. She was uh, signed to a development deal, so she wasn't on RCA at that time. She was signed to Big Machine at that time. So she had already left RCA? Yeah. I see. Yeah, they, they were on a development deal there, and they just felt that nothing was getting developed. They were doing it all themselves, so they walked away. And that's when she met Scott when he was at MCA. And then he, the, the story's out there. He said, hey, I'm going to start my own label. Would you guys? And that she ended up there. So uh, I came out, uh, accepted the position with Scott. He gave me the Taylor music. And she had only just been a writer in town. She'd been writing and recording and uh, hanging out on MySpace. You know, she had never really toured. She didn't. She did some contests and things like that, but she wasn't out touring. So he sent her to me to take her on that radio tour. I was still living in California as the West Coast Regional. But when I asked him why me, he said, uh, I say this as a compliment. He says, it's because you're too dumb to know any better. Mm. I paused for a second. I'm like, I still can't quite figure out how that's a compliment. <laughs> he said, uh, he said, a lot of people will use the fact that it's a no-name artist and unknown artist as, as a reason why it failed. He said, you just seem to kind of go in one direction. He says, you just, you kind of walk through fire. You'll walk through walls if you believe in something and you're passionate about it. So uh, I loved it. My wife, I think, accepted the job before I did because I was working three jobs, including coaching at the university. Uh, I've always been a sober bartender. I, I, I bought some of the clubs just so I had the the route for the Nashville to U tour. So I owned clubs, everything to make like three jobs to make 75 grand a year and I got one offer that paid more than that with health insurance. And my wife like, we're in, he'll take it. <laughs> well, he's going to have to travel. Doesn't matter. He'll take it. He's going to be gone a lot. Don't matter. He'll take it. You know? So that's kind of what happened there. And, uh, they sent Taylor out. We spent six months together to kind of change both our lives. And then six months, uh, after that, they asked me to be her manager. Six months. You were, you were traveling around the country doing, I radio was, tour? I was, well, I was traveling around my nine states and 70 stations. So I worked for the record company for about six months. And then after that six months, they sent her out to come do radio tour with me. We spent about 30 days together. And then she went back out with the other regionals. And then six months after that is when her dad called and said, hey, because I, I told, I called Scott Borchette. I said, you got to find them a manager, man. They're calling me every night at eight. It's like ten o'clock in Nashville, eight o'clock in California, and I'm I'm getting my kids out of the bath. It's daddy time at that point, right. and they just they're 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 
hustlers, man. They want. What year is this? This is uh, 2005, 2006, right around that area. 2006. Okay. Because I'm trying, I'm trying, because uh, a little bit before that, probably around 2002, it's interesting to to be hearing this because uh, I had a, a, a writing deal when I first come to town with King Lizard Music, who was Liz Rose and Kingsley Brock. And Liz ended up writing a lot of those songs yep. with Taylor. Yep. And uh, But she was my publisher before she was a songwriter. Oh, great story. And so uh, so she actually, uh, you know, uh, she used to tell us, it's so interesting to hear this because she used to tell us, you need to find these young uh, these young artists and and uh, be part of their story or uh, the artist the artist story right in in the beginning and she used to tell us that and then I ended up later on uh, King Lizard ended up g- going under and I ended up over it windswept after that and um, and anyway it was uh, I remember her saying that and then and then I found out later she she had kind of teamed up with Taylor and ended up writing a lot of her hits. She did. And yeah. uh, it was, it's an interesting story because, you know, Taylor had her publishing deal first. She had her publishing deal with Sony ATV and then she had a uh, development deal that she was doing with RCA. But uh, yeah, Liz, Liz and her just clicked and connected. Liz is one of my favorite people. Uh, it's like she let Taylor tell her stories and then just did her magic. Yeah. You know, it's like in a lot of rooms that, young artists will go into sometimes with the A-list writers. And if they're young, sometimes the A-list writers try to take over the room uh, yeah. and miss out on an opportunity. Yeah. It's it's amazing how, how you kind of have to learn to step back a little bit and, and let them do what they do and have that sound yep. and, and then put in, put in the craft. But it's, there it's hard, to, but, you know. I, and I can't speak for a hit songwriter, but I think sometimes it's hard because there is a system and there is a formula, you know, and a lot of the great writers that have had hits year after year after year after year after year, you know, the Marv Greens, the Tim Nichols, mm-hmm. the Casey Bethers, those guys, they know that structure, the Dallas Davisons, you know, Rodney Clausens, they know that there's, so when you get that young artist that comes in, she just happened to be different. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of artists where, you know, they're lu- you're lucky if you can get a sentence out of them in the room and you pretty much do write the whole song. She just wasn't that way. Uh, she she had something she wanted to say. So. Right. So six months after the radio thing, you they – After the radio tour that her and I did. I took right. her on the Nashville to you tour. Basically, he said, take her on that tour, let her get used to playing, meeting radio. And six months later, they, they, asked they, me they to bring be a, a contract. How much is this They contract? don't bring a contract. That's not well, how it works. A- Whatever it is, they 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 ask yeah. you to be your manager. I thought that one time you told me there was a contract. No, I was on uh, a salary, but then when two they years after, when they offered you to be a manager, though you weren't a manager at that point, were you? I was. I was. I was the manager. I was. It was a different situation back then. They wanted to pay me a salary to be her manager and focus on her because they didn't want, like most managers, having to take crap gigs in order to pay your bills. So they were smart. And I wish every manager was given that luxury to know that their bills were paid and they had things. So yes, I was her manager. So at you're that saying time. you were already her manager for the six months. No. 
Six months, I worked for the record company. Okay. During that six months, we developed a relationship and a trust where they were calling me every night. They didn't have a manager at that point. Okay, and then six months. After that, they I told the record label, they need to go find a manager. And they went, and most of the major management companies in this town told them no. They didn't, you know, and then finally her dad called and said, what would you say if Taylor, I said, Taylor wanted you to be her manager. I said, I'd say no. I'm like, why would you say no? I said, because I'm not experienced. And he said something to me that night. He said, one, she trusts you. Two, you believe in her. He said, three, you're not afraid to ask for help. He said, you've made so many relationships through that Nashville to you tour that I could call any manager in town and say, hey, I don't understand what this means. What is it that I need to do? That's when they made me the offer to be her manager. So then you became her manager. I yes. knew that. Yeah. But at some point, you turned down a contract, did you not? In two years, I was with her till 2008, and I was getting ready to go from salary to a commission, not a contract, to a commission. And in that- You don't sign a contract? I didn't, no. I'm saying people don't sign contracts? Some people do. When they were the manager? Some people do, some people don't. So you, there was no contract There was ever no contract. That was ever talked about? No. There's a lot of major artists in this town that have never had a physical written contract. How much would you have made? That's what I want well, to know. Well, we'll, we'll do the math. If an art, if a manager gets ten to fifteen percent of an artist's career, and they have eighteen to twenty million on the books, it's over a million dollars. Yeah, yeah. So that's what would have been made had I continued in two thousand and eight. Now, what made you say? Tell the people I already know, but tell the people what made you turn that down because that's a big yeah. number. Well, the thing is, is that one, I grew up poor, so I've never made decisions in my life based on money because we never had it. I was gone one hundred eighty-five days my last year with Taylor. The reason my book is called the $150,000 music degree is that's what my salary was. And everything I know about being a manager, I know by doing. It's not theory. It's reality. That's kind of what we did. So uh, 185 days, my daughter was four, my son was two. And that ship was only going higher. That ship was only, it was only, if I if it was 187 days or 185 days I was gone in 19, in, in 2000. Seven, it was going to be a lot more in 2008. And I didn't realize, I felt that it would go out in alimony and child support. I wouldn't know my kids. And I never got in this business to be a manager. I got in this business to be in radio. Everything I happened to get just came. People, that's why people will say, well, how is it that you kept getting hired? I said, because people keep seeing what I finished. You know, it's like, they're like, go to this guy, get it done. Do you miss radio? I do. That's why I do my podcast. Is that how how that came about? Yeah, I just I I I don't I I don't miss getting up at five a.m. in the morning. Let's just be honest. But yeah, I miss the interaction with the fans. I miss the interaction of what it is that I do. But when I left Taylor in two thousand and eight, it was the best. It was the right decision for me. And it's like I tell people, somebody else that may have been a different decision. But honestly, I had taken her as far as I could take her. I never world toured before. We'd have to build a whole team around what it is that I did. Well, I believe you could have well, done more. Well, I, I could have learned it. I don't yeah, disagree. You didn't know that, how to do it when you started doing it. No, but I would have built the thing around. But it's like, yeah. I don't like, here's the part that I don't like. My my last few months with Taylor, my day was spent telling people no on her behalf. It wasn't the getting on MySpace and finding fans. It wasn't the three and a half hour signing lines. It wasn't all the fun stuff that her and I enjoy doing together. It was now getting to that point where the develop I'm great in the development stages of an artist's career. I'm great as that early cheerleader. I'm great as that accountability partner. I'm great at getting people to that next level to be able to hand them off. 
I suck as a manager of somebody at that space because it's not fun for me to not be involved in that part anymore. And now it's all business and telling people no and dealing with contracts and all that. So that's, that's not fun. For so me. it wasn't that you couldn't, it was that you didn't want to. Correct. Right. Yeah. So big difference in those two things. Yeah. Yeah. And I think too, it, it just, I was 300 pounds at the time I had also, I, I had a, a medical problem that we didn't understand because of stress. There was, it would have killed me. I that's, honestly, I be believe, true. I honestly believe yeah, that at that point true. it would have killed me because I didn't know how to handle all that pressure. I didn't know there were so many things at that level that are out of your control that suck. That's the part that this business, we are trying to function in a dysfunctional business because your work and your rewards don't complement each other. You can be working your tail off every day. You can be doing everything right, and it's still not pay off. And that's very frustrating for a lot of people, and it was very stressful, frustrating for me because common sense wasn't always common practice. And I'm like, I ask why a lot. I'm like that third grader. It's like, why? How come? You know, I, I just wasn't getting what I felt. I don't want to say the right answers because that makes me sound. I they couldn't they couldn't make me understand why certain things weren't happening. And I started seeing that there was a lot of things based on things that were outside of our control. And I didn't like that feeling at all. I felt helpless. I felt when I have to go back and explain to the artist something that I don't comprehend and makes zero sense to me. And I'm having to explain to them because here's the, the sucky part about this. An artist gets maybe one or two careers. A manager can get a hundred. Mm-hmm. Manager can get a thousand if they want. So it's like I'm trying to do the best that I could with what I had available to me. And at the meantime, I'm missing birthdays of my little ones. There's different things that I'm starting to see happening. There's certain things that are going on that I'm just not that excited about anymore. And like I said, I've never made decisions based on money because we never had it. That is not my driving, motivating factor for anything that I do. It's always about how can I serve? How can I be the best me? And how can I go to bed every night knowing that I don't owe anyone an apology for trying to wrong them to better me? You were actually Taylor's manager when she won her Grammy, first Grammy, right? No. No? She didn't win it that year. Amy Winehouse won it. Because she, did she not mention you in a speech? She said that was not a Grammy accepted speech. She even mentioned me in a lot of speeches. CM, what was the? CMT Awards, ACM Awards, well, whatever CMA the award Awards. Was, yeah. you were, how many awards did she win while you were a manager? Probably three or four. Did she mention you ever one of them? I'm the last person that she ever mentioned as I want to thank my manager, Rick Barker. I don't think she's ever thanked a manager before. She yeah. has Robert Allen and her mom and dad and everybody who does anything. But, yeah, she thanked me a couple times, yeah. Was it a Grammy that she won when Kanye West came up? and Or what was that? MTV Award. MTV Award. I was not with her at that time. What did you think about him coming up there and doing that? I thought she handled herself well. I thought that I was texting, actually, Scott Borchetta at the time when that was going down. And he said, Pink wants to go kick Kanye's ass. I said, tell Pink to go hug Kanye. Because what he just did was he showed the world how classy Taylor Swift is and how she knew how to handle herself. Right. And she went from being America's sweetheart or country sweetheart to America's sweetheart that day. Yeah, I was I was about to say that she that I think that really catapulted her even further than she was. She just got on more people's radars. 
Yeah, because that's right. the first time I, I'll be honest with you, this is the first mm-hmm. time I'd ever heard of her mm-hmm. was when Kanye West did that. You know what I'm talking about? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. I didn't know if you watched the award shows. Yeah, I don't even know what you're talking about. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you seem like you seem like you're, you're, you're fading. I don't know. How long ago did you start the podcast? Two years ago. Two years ago? Yeah, I'm on episode 241. You do, how, do, how often do you release on yours? Once a week. I started off twice a week, and then I went to uh, once a week. You do little nuggets sometimes. Yeah, it's like, like eight minutes, 20 minutes, 35 minutes. And you drop some good stuff on there. I try. Very nice. I try. And then, so I did notice that there are two MIB podcasts with Rick Barker, for some reason, on Apple Music. Don't know what that is. The first one. You don't know what it is. No, I mean, I had something a long time ago. I think it was called 25 Minutes from Nashville. That was how I first started. We're doing YouTube uh, videos, and I would strip the audio and throw it up as a podcast. But the launch of my podcast legitimately was two years ago, 2018. I see. And you, like, is that, do you want to, if I said, what is your goal for 10 year ago? What is, what is that? I won't be doing this in 10 years. I'll be traveling with my wife golfing i've got I'm, I'm on I, I don't know if i'll ever fully retire i'll probably always do something but i don't i'm not looking at a 10-year goal right now i've got a five-year plan and my five-year plan is to continue to put as many put the information in as many people's hands as i possibly can uh, i continue to do personal coaching with people that's only going to last for about three more years because i give up every single monday of my life for these people uh and in the entrepreneur space, I could be charging way more than I'm doing on the music side. If, uh, if money was my driving factor, I would be in the entrepreneur space and I would have left artists a long time ago, but they're my heart. They're my passion. You know, I always tell people my jobs to affect millions of people with songs I didn't write by teaching creatives how to get the music in their hands. Uh, so if I was doing it for the money, I mean, the thing with what's funny is, is I can take a social media course, charge $97 for it in the artist space and I could put a zero on it and get for the exact same course in the entrepreneur space and they would actually go for it. So my goal is to continue to coach up as many artists as I can. Uh, My goal is to help. I don't want to say develop, but I want to help inspire some of these younger managers. You know, there's this whole different breed because I always say people can't afford a manager, but they need management guidance and management help. But you know, my philosophies are my philosophies. My brain works very weird. It would be, I could not teach someone my brain. I could teach them the strategies that I look at, but the tactics are always changing. So yeah, my five-year plan is my daughter just started college. My son is a junior in high school. I want to take the next five years to continue doing what I'm doing. And then I want my wife and I to go around. I want to golf all over the place and chase the sun. I figured what your plan might be was to because you have this online, you have this digital, is it called digital managing? What's it called? Well, it's, uh, well, I, people get me on the phone, but I have online training courses is what I have. I, I call, I, I'm like a virtual manager. I don't yeah. sign contracts with people. I don't take commissions. They, I, they pay. Right. And I, you know, it's about three, it works out to about $250 a month to be able to have direct access to me to answer their questions. So then what I figured was at some point, five years, 10 years, whatever, you would just be the name of the agency or whatever. Yeah. And then there would be other managers doing that yeah. underneath you. I don't want to do that. I think, and I've talked to people about that. They've asked about it. Uh, basically what I want to do is be able to go speak and then every year put out a product of some sorts, uh, maybe do a couple virtual conferences or something like that, get together. But 
it's like I don't stay. This is the 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 interesting part. I don't focus a lot on the music industry at all. People are always like, "Here's music industry X." I don't consider myself a music industry anything. I, I'm an online marketer. That's what I am. I'm I'm teaching people how to go find the folks and get your music in front of them. How to build relationships. I could care less about charts. I could care less about radio. Air. I don't. That's not the world I live in anymore. Haven't lived in that world for a long time. Uh, a lot of people are like, oh, this guy's a guru. No, I just try to, if you've got something you need to get in front of somebody, that's what I'm trying to figure out. I'm trying to figure out where do we go find them? How do we build the relationship? How do we create an opportunity? Uh, I don't keep up with a lot of what's going on inside the industry. I focus on the music business side of things. I don't know if that makes sense, but that's kind of where my head's at right now. No, I get that completely. Yeah. Because it's a, it's a business no matter what. Yeah, I mean, but it's not the industry. Like no. I'm not in the industry. Yeah, I always tell people, thank goodness, because the industry took a crap during COVID. Because everything, the money was made on the touring. Mm -hmm. I mean, that's where uh, all those commission based jobs in this town. Oh my gosh, all our friends, the caterers, the 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 laborers, the union. I mean, oh my word. I mean, it shut down, and because the only people making money off radio are the publishers, the songwriters. And if the artist had a piece in it, and now a little bit to the labels, but everyone was making their money off the touring, off the merch sales. Especially nowadays, uh, the labels, because historically, the uh, you know the labels made their money from CD sales. Correct. So uh, you know it's so between you know in the last ten years, they it's kind of changed to where you know they own some of the part uh three the 360 deals yep. that happen it, they own part of the artist's publishing for the songs and you know so th they're getting their money from all different places and and now you know this i had to explain that i did a clubhouse room explaining the 360 <laughs> deal and what it meant because people were like pissed off and i'm like let me ask you a question if you're the bank how fast do you want to be paid back they're like well i'd want to be paid well that's the deal. The label's the bank. Yeah. But the problem with the old model is that the bank was the last person to get paid back. Everybody right. else was making money. Yeah. The, and, and a lot of times the artist, you know, when you see when you see a, a tour bus with catering and and you see all this stuff, a lot of people think that the that the record labels are paying for that. They, they, they're they paying for it up front. It. Yeah, they're they're it, but the artists have to pay all that stuff yeah. back. Mm -hmm. and it's a million dollars to break an artist. That's the part you know? that was tough because when, and when Nashville, you were here, Chris, you know the deal. It's like there was a lot of times when the artist didn't write the song. So, oh, yeah. So the very so on radio airplay the only people so the record company signs the artist the artist immediately on signature day goes into debt now all of a sudden they're paying to record the record company puts up the money to record it the radio the record company puts up the money to take the artist out on tour the artist is now every night going out kissing everybody's butt working their tails off doing everything that they can the song goes up the chart. And the celebration is between the publisher and the songwriter, not the art. The artist didn't make a dime off of that. The record company, if a CD wasn't released, hadn't made a dime off of it. There was no downloads at that time. Right. It was all, uh, it was hope at that <laughs> point. We hope that that's for that song hits. And at that time, the first song didn't necessarily have to hit. It could be the second song or the third song, but soon as it got up the chart, then the tour started coming along. She had a number one song. So the publisher got paid. The writer got paid. Now the artist will start making a little money. 
The band's going to start making money. The managers can start commissioning the shows. The business managers can start commissioning the shows. And the record company's sitting over here going, wait, what about us? Yeah. <laughs> you know, we're the last yeah. persons. That's why the 360 came around. Oh, yeah. And 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 you just want to make sure that you get the best 360 deal possible. You know, it's like one of the ones that I did. And I won't mention the artist because uh, it's their business. But we had the label doesn't participate until after this certain amount we hit. And this is at the percentage that they're able to participate. So it's just what happens is a lot of uneducated people who have never had any of this are the ones usually out there starting the fire on why everything's so bad. But it's like if I'm in a business, I want to get my ledger to the black as fast as possible so that I can keep getting these luxuries that come along with having, because right. if you're in the red and it's like, then you become a casualty at that well, point. On a smaller level, same thing before that happened, the same thing is happening with songwriters was happening with songwriters on, you know, you might have a, a song on, you know, on, that's on a huge album. And if it's not a single, Still makes it, money. If well, if you if you well as a songwriter, you don't because you, you have to. You also have a draw. You know they're paying you a monthly draw, or and, and all the demos that you have done before. Then you might have done you know a hundred demos before that that you have to pay back. So a lot of times when you see a songwriter that gets a song on a big album that isn't a single, they don't see any of that money wow. because it all goes to, recoupment. To, to recoup their draw that they've gotten for two, three years. And that's the reason. Uh, and I, I come across this on, you know, uh, the more songs you get, the bigger your draw gets. And then if, if, if one day you stop, stop making those big songs and you're getting that big draw, then then it's you're the business. first one that goes. Well, you know? it is, and that's that's the part of what's funny. I, I don't I, I don't even know why I said the word funny, but what's interesting is that not everyone participates the same way. It's like when streaming came out, they went and said, "Okay, radio's been paying the publishers and the songwriters the most amount of money. Why don't we go pay the masters?" rights person the most amount of money and not pay the songwriters and the it was like everybody it's like to get permission to get all those songs uploaded to those platforms they went and struck the deals with the masters owners which was the before record companies. they even ever even mentioned the the publishers and songwriters yeah. they had already had their deal done yeah and they <laughs> that's what that was just kind of weedy but it was interesting that they did that they're like hey how can we get because it's like they wanted the masters to be able to play so they went and struck the deal with the master. And owners. to all those who don't know, too, the, uh, you know, a, a copyright, you have the, the master p person who owns the the recording and then the person who owns the song. And the uh, especially on streaming, the the master royalty moves two times. The, the, the decibel point moves two times as opposed to the songwriter royalty. Yeah. I had I had a song "Don't Blink" by Kenny Chesney had seventeen million point three spins per quarter, and my part was a hundred and two dollars for seventeen hmm. million spins. Wow! <laughs> and that's I was like, wah wah yeah. wah wah. How do we insert that sound oh, effect okay, in there? You need, you need to get that to like you need to get their the spins to like what three billion. You'd be doing pretty good. Yeah, I'd be doing good. Yeah, yeah pretty you. nice. You better start writing hip hop. <laughs> <laughs> so, Rick, if uh, 
We're almost finished. We're wrapping up. I know you got to go. We we've already taken up past his time that we paid him for here. I know. Golly. It's it's one thirty four now. <laughs> um, what would if if an artist comes to you right now and they and they have no fans, no no music recorded, nothing? What do you tell them? They just got a dream. What do you tell them? Just go focus on the music. Get the music right. What do they do? They they go they home go, and just start writing, or well, that or they they, they go to YouTube, or they go grab a course. They go to Seth Mosley. They go to anybody. It's like if it's going to be a, a job, you have to treat it like a job. If it's going to be a hobby, have fun. But once you start wanting someone else to give you money for something, the mindset has to change at that point. And that's what I tell people. It's like just go have fun with it, and then if the bug starts to hit but it's like if you want to the internet did this thing it, it became the ultimate neutralizer it doesn't discriminate it doesn't care how much you weigh what your economic background is what pronoun you want to be called nothing you are now competing with the world when it comes to music so if you want to call yourself an artist and you want to go out and compete just like any athlete just like anything you've got to get good at your craft focus on the music first Sometimes people are trying to build audience with crap and we've seen it. We, we wouldn't, I don't ever want them to go try to build an audience until they get that part. Right. So that's what I would say to him first, get the music right. Now, once you have the music, right, then we're having a different conversation. Now we want to go find the right people for that music. That's the next conversation. And then we want to start building relationships with that person, but just focus on getting your music right. First is what I would do. I would tell them, I would say what you need to do is you need to go, Listen to Music Industry Blueprint. Podcast. It would hurt them. It would hurt their. It would hurt them. That's that's not even at that right time for people. I I would say get with a vocal coach. Get with a guitar teacher. Get well, with a song. I'm talking about somebody that are we that is they already they they can sing. Yeah, they, they, they can sing. They, that's that's they good. can play guitar. Yeah, they yeah. they can sing. Then they Maybe. should go to the Music Industry Blueprint. Yeah, they, they should just go to RickBarker.com. Just go to rickbarker.com, take the assessment. It will identify, are you a beginner? Are you an intermediate? Are you an advanced based on a couple questions that I ask you? And then I will send you whatever I feel is the next thing based on where you're at. Uh, and then you can kind of go from there. So that was that was Marty's nice way of trying to send people down my rabbit hole. No, I was, I'm being serious. I did. I, I, you do give. You found it. He gives a lot of good tips to mm -hmm. people that are. That have nothing. I know because, like I said, I used them before, way before I knew Rick, I was doing that, and I built a, a following uh, by the grace of God, and, but not even really knowing what I was doing. No, but you did it at a time when people could build followings. Now it's tougher. We were talking about that before we started recording this podcast about having followers and having things right now. It just, we sure were. It makes it tough because – We're talking about vanity metrics. Yeah. That's what we're talking about. And the thing is, is that – but here's the thing, too, and, and I use you as an example. You're in all of my webinars. I bring you up and I show the picture. But what I show them is the consistency. Uh, I show them that you don't have to be beautiful uh, in now, order to now, do this. How am I worth it? You don't have to be. You, <laughs> what, what, you don't, how am I? Why do you show them that with me? You don't have to be, you don't have to be young. Yeah, I say you don't have to be young. But what I show them is you have to be talented and you have to be consistent. Because I, I, I show them the consistency of what you did. I show them, uh, I play for them your style the way that you did. And I use the Vanilla Ice story. And then I lead it to, here's a picture with Marty and Vanilla Ice. But I'm not going to ruin the story. Go to 
Marty Ray Project on YouTube. And that's what I tell them in the webinar. I said, but this is what happened is he was not trying to be the same thing that everyone else was doing. He did it in his own unique style Mm -hmm. because they're always like, well, I can't do cover songs. I'm an artist. I'm like, bullshit. Let me show you Marty Ray. He's an, tell me this isn't an artist. And then every time I play it, people are like, I love his voice. You know, people get super excited. But I said, this is what it ultimately led to. And when we were on Clubhouse the other day and, and Vanilla Ice was talking about how he found you, he said, trust me, everyone is putting out covers of my songs. Everyone was bringing me covers. No one ever brought me a cover of my song like this. So that's what I share with people. But it's really hard today to get the same numbers of subscribers and followers that we were able to get before organically. Now you have to pay for it because the reach isn't there like it was. They spoiled us. They're the biggest drug dealers in the world was Facebook. They got us all hooked (laughs) on reach. Every time we'd put something, people would show up, but we got spoiled. And then they said, okay, now that we've given you the free drugs, we're going to pull it back and start charging, which is okay. That's their business model. It's a good way to look at it because it really does feel that way because they got us hooked. And that's what I was talking about in this clubhouse room the other night was vanity metrics. They were saying, who cares about followers? And I'm like, well, let me tell you something. Uh, everybody, if you're, if you're in this business, if you're in any business and you're, and you're online, you better care about followers because the only reason is not because of vanity, but because three years ago, maybe four, I could post any music video on Facebook and it would get a million views. Yes. No question. I mean, it could be any video of me singing and the people would, people would share it throughout the four years. The organic reach has done this. So, but my organic reach is still pretty good because I have a larger following. Right. So when somebody says, don't worry about the numbers, like this is vanity. It's not just vanity. The bigger you get your followers, the bigger your organic reach is, even though it's right. small. The bigger you get engaged followers, and that's what you have. That's what we talked about when we first started working together is you have an engaged audience. Just because you buy followers they must not necessarily be engaged. So now what happens is they just sent out the new algorithm numbers that the first thing they look at is, are people saving you? Mm-hmm. Cause that can't be bought. Mm-hmm. Are they sharing? Cause that can't be bought. The engagement group started doing the fake comments. So they figured that could be bought. The plays, the subscribers could be bought. And what people didn't understand is it was hurting their, their reach because these were fake people. So they weren't there to engage with anything. Right. Marty built an engaged following so that even it's like the percentages are different now because of the reach, which is just Facebook knows we've got only so much real estate that we can show people. So because people leave comments and because people share his stuff, because it's shareable. And that's what I tell people. Are you shareable? If you're just posting about a gig, that's not shareable. If you're just posting, watch my video, that's not shareable. Uh, and that's where they're doing themselves harm. But when you post stuff that's shareable, that's unique, that's different, that's going to really help you. And the vanity metrics, I don't even think that that's even the right word. It's like some people are going to look at your followers and their brain's going to determine right away whether they want to even go listen to your songs based mm-hmm. off your followers. That happens. It's just, it's yep. the, it's like no one wanting to be the first person to the party kind right. of situation. They'll park down the street and wait till folks show up kind of stuff. Yeah. That's still what happens. But the, the problem that I laugh at is somebody who has all these followers and you listen to their music and it's crap and you're like, okay, so now you want us to invest in a liar because we know you just bought all this stuff. We know that all the fist bump and lit emojis yeah. are, 
you know, the same guy doing the same thing. So right, it's like right. we're just telling people, don't be fooled by the numbers. Continue to do your research. But numbers do matter because that's what we put the value. We put the value on it. They right. definitely matter. I don't, I don't think anybody should buy a follower. Right. Not one. I agree. Because mm-hmm. buying it doesn't get it's not gonna it's not gonna convert but to we anything. Didn't know. Remember years ago when you could go on Twitter and buy the followers? I was buying all my friends' followers thinking I was doing them a favor. It's like you could get a thousand followers for five bucks and all you did was give the name of the account. This was right. like fifteen years ago, and I'm like, I bought all my friends these they'd wake up. I said, Watch, they're gonna wake up in the morning, they're gonna see ten thousand followers and think they're the bomb, and I bought them. <laughs> you know? It's That's like, funny. And then we had to go in and go, Oh crap, now it changed. You gotta unfollow all those people. But yeah, no, we all did it at some point. Right. <laughs> because that was, he was fu- you were dude, I would he let was him wake breaking up. his friends with Twitter followers. <laughs> dude, I'm so huge. Because I knew they I got- would call me. <laughs> Dude, I, I woke got up this morning, exactly. <laughs> and I could buy a, you know five thousand Twitter followers for like five bucks. So I was just buying all my friends these followers so that I could get the reaction on their face when they showed up, thinking they got popular. I didn't know. I didn't even know you could buy. I didn't know there was a. I didn't know you could buy followers until that until the great Instagram purge. Remember that? I don't. This was a while back. This was actually big time artists too, oh, Justin it? Bieber and yeah. and all oh, these people. Yeah. And Instagram purged every fake account, and it went down. And yeah. then there was people. This was so <laughs> funny. There was people that were that were friends with Brad and I. You know Brad, mm-hmm. and they had been claiming about how all their followers just bragging about all their followers, and uh, <laughs> like one of them had like fifty thousand followers and. And we was like, well, you know, well, I guess we can't say much. He does have fifty thousand followers. We didn't really think about it, you know. I didn't, I didn't think that there was people out here buying followers. Yeah. I was like, what's the point of that? To look to impressive. Ha- to look impressive, but it doesn't convert to anything. No. But here's what happened: the great, I call, it, I call it, I just named it that, the great Instagram purge. It purged all fake followers off of Instagram. If they were inactive accounts and stuff, they were gone. Even mm-hmm. if you, matter of fact, even if you were a real account but you were inactive for. A long time they purged you. So then this kid goes from fifty to three hundred <laughs> overnight. Wow. Overnight. Yes. And I was like, three he only has three hundred now, mind you, a lot of big time stars, they had hundred a hundred well, the bigger you Hundreds are, the thousands. bots. Yeah, and the well, bots yeah. track into your thing too. You don't even have to buy them. You can get a bunch of fake followers the bigger you get. Cause there was a there was an app that you could just type in a thing, put in the thing, and it would say 80% of your followers are this based on their activity. Like right now, I'm trying to find a good app to purge some of the earlier people that followed me that may not even be on Instagram anymore because if they don't engage, it helps, it screws with the algorithm. So right now, I'm trying to get rid of followers. Mm-hmm. That's the day that we're in right now. Is it's like let's get rid of anybody who decided they didn't want to be active on Instagram anymore because if they're being shown my stuff and they're not engaging with it, it's affecting my other stuff. So I'm like constantly every day trying to unfollow people that have not been active. And that's something you helped me time. with. You helped me with uh, with uh, a mental thing of because when I was uh, my Facebook likes for a little bit were going were were going down. When I would post a story, Facebook likes would go down, and it was either these. It was either, like you said, it was either somehow some some fake bots got attached, or it was people. I tell you what happens a lot. If I post a scripture, yep, on my story, I can I can literally see them really? leave, and I go, 
they're just going to leave them. But I, it really affected me for a little bit. And I told Rick about it, and he said, "Well, if they're not supporting you, if they're not if they're not actively engaging with you anyway, they don't need to be. They're 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 dead weight." As yeah. far as in, in your business and, and the same with the email list. Remember I, I told you about uns, the email list. Unsubscribes are my friends. Yeah. That means I don't have to pay for it anymore. Just, yeah. <laughs> I, I've, I've been learning that lately. I've been, I've been, I cut down from quite a bit from what I had, but it, but it's, you know, it, it's, of course I had somebody unsubscribed the other day who I, like three days before got on my free download and then unsubscribed and said, and, and put down, I was spam. It was weird. Yeah, I, I, <laughs> because I, get, I was get, like, you just—it was two days, yeah, two it, days ago it, that you—and don't worry about that because it won't hurt you a lot. But I get it all the time. People will be sending me an email back. They're like, "How did I even get on your list?" And I'll go and I'll say, uh, "You watch this free training. You sign because I can tell how they came right, to my right. list." And people forget all the time. And a lot of times too, people will download the free thing and then unsubscribe right away because yeah. they they understand that the majority mm-hmm. of people don't know how to do proper email engagement and it just becomes marketing and that's the thing as i always tell people the download for the song wasn't new teaching artists how to use it is new and i spent a lot of time with my people teaching them how to do proper we call it nurturing mm-hmm. you know it's like when someone comes into your world what's the next three emails they're going to get and what other value can we provide to them before we try to get them to you know purchase something or to your merch store or something like that what's the nurture process and that's that's what my whole business is it's a Give, 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 ask. Give, 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 ask. He's right. actually, he's actually in your world now. I know. Yeah, with that, I didn't know if you knew that or not. I he's, did. he's got a course. Yeah, coming I'm, out. Yeah, I got a course coming out, and uh, and, and I'm also doing, you know, mentoring and and uh, I call it, you know, song coaching. Well, I was on. one of the first people that uh, got on and and waved the banner for hit songwriters to charge for their time when because I know that when I send a young artist in with you, it's an education and they should be paying for that education. And everybody was like, Oh no, I can never charge. We wait till we get the cut. Well, there's less cuts available now. It's like, it's like everybody resisted the change of it's like, like managers, managers only get paid when the artist gets paid. Well, all my work's done on the front end and there may or may not be a back end. So where is that fair? You know, it's like, so I had to, I had to spend a lot of time, kind of restructuring that's why i did a co- coaching and consulting it's like no if i if i'm your they're like well you sh- i can't manage everyone a manager can only have two or three people right if that's the case so no i love what you're doing because what can happen is people can come in and they can learn it's like here's the part i didn't understand they pay a vocal coach three hundred dollars some in this town so three hundred dollars for an hour you know they'll go pay a guitar instructor though but then to get you to teach them how to write a hit song, which to me is still the most important thing. Oh, Chris needs to do this for free. Well, then that's mm-hmm. why you're not getting in Chris's room. And right. that's why you're not getting in Leslie Satcher's room. You know, we're here at Leslie's place. It's like they all want to write with the big songwriters, but they didn't offer anything. I'm like, at least bring an audience. Right, right. Because there goes those numbers again. You show up with 100,000 YouTube subscribers, you're going to get a songwriter that the guy with no subscribers won't get. It's a three hundred dollars circle jerk oh, right yeah, now. I'm hundred <laughs> percent, and I'm the only one happy. <laughs> you know what wah, that means. Wah, wah, wah. <laughs> so Rick, you are at Rick Barker everywhere, or what is your exact? So RickBarker.com. Go to the website. 
then from there, you can get all my socials. You can get my podcast there. You can get my blog. You can get everything there. RickBarker.com. That's B-A-R-K-E-R. Yeah, and you're you're actually the one that made me change my website uh, because to BigSexy.com or what? <laughs> That's right. I got an OnlyFans now because of you. Man. <laughs> I'm making bikini on, photos. Man. I mean, I owe my whole career. I'm a very rich man because of Rick Barker. Man. He said bikini photos, OnlyFans. Go. And I did it. I'm on Lonely Fans. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Rick, man. when we end every show with. I can only imagine what you end the show with. <laughs> with the Walmart facts. Yes. Oh, yeah. look what he did for you, Rick. Check that out. Ooh, leave that, leave that wow. up. Leave that up even on Chris and I's face for Rick yes, Barker. Man. There we go. RickBarker.com. Spelled right. It's spelled perfectly right That's there. That's it. All right. You can just click that link in the yeah. video. I couldn't get RickySuave.com. It wasn't Now, that would, have, that would have been nice. <laughs> we end every show with an unbelievable fact. Okay. You ready? Okay. I can only imagine. The unbelievable fact is sunglasses were originally designed for Chinese judges so they could hide their facial expressions. Hmm. They were originally made out of smoky quartz in 12th century China. How crazy is that? Uh, That's where sunglasses came from. Wow. Think about it. Before the 12th century China, the judges, before that, nobody wore sunglasses. That's that's great. Isn't that great? That's great. Isn't that great, Rick? (laughs) Yeah. Rick, can you say it's great one more time? (laughs) I think it's great. (laughs) It's amazing. That is like the greatest fact I ever heard. I, it's smoking, unbelievable. Explain yeah. smoking quartz. It smokes. <laughs> it smokes. It just starts smoking. It's got a problem. Yeah. Man. Yeah. And that 12th century smoking quartz. That was the good stuff. Wow. Yeah. Back that's, then, yeah, yeah. that's back. In it's the, not as good as that 21st century stuff, but that 12th century smoking quartz. Boom. Man. Rock your world. It was addictive. Imagine the judges with the glasses. that smoke. The smoke's rolling up their foreheads. Were they heavy because it was quartz? It was like a rock? I think they just held them up. They just held them? Yeah, I think it was just holding, so holding they them could, up. I mean, so you couldn't see their eyes, but their face still went. Yeah. I mean, it didn't. <laughs> like, all it hit was their eyes. But yeah. I yeah. mean, yeah. Anyway, that's, uh, that's, thank the, you. that's thank the unbelievable you. Yeah. fact. It's unbelievable. And now look at you. You owe all your sunglasses wearing to 12th century China, Rick. Yep. Trying to hide my expression. I hide these dark-ass bags that everybody keeps telling me. I think those bags are lovely. You know what's funny? I'll they look do, like Versace to me. I will do a, uh, a a Facebook ad, Instagram ad, and everybody will be like, dude, tell that guy to lay off the heroin. Get some sleep. Stop smoking the crack. And I'm like, stop judging my looks. Judge my content. I said, because this is ugly. If you're going to if you're gonna base what you learn from me off my looks, you're, you're destined for failure. I'm going to say this just because you said that. The very one of the first videos I ever made. This is before I had very many fans at all. It was literally just. It's still on my YouTube channel. Really old. It's still up there from years and years ago. It was uh, because at the time I was being judged by the way I looked. So people were saying they were judging me and all that stuff before they even heard me sing. And in that video, I say, "Close your eyes and judge me for my sound." Mm. I say that in my. In my I video. like that. So it's funny that you said that. That was years ago. And you know yep. that that video, people people send me that video and they go, this is one of my favorite videos you've done. And I'll go, I'm literally just speaking. It's music. I'm, it's music yeah. playing, but I'm just speaking thoughts. See, I use that, that. I walked in. I used it for content. I went into the Mac store in the Green Hills Mall. And I went in. I said, all right, I'm going in to get this girl to do my makeup because everybody keeps thinking I'm a drug addict still because of my eyes. So I walk in. I said, I need a black girl. And they're like, what? 
I guess this is the way I said, it. I said, I need a black girl to do my makeup because I have darker skin. So I want her to really be able to do this. And we did this video. And then the headline for my next ad was, can you tell if I'm wearing makeup or not? And then I went in and told that story. And then people. Right. That's clever. Yeah. That, that'd be funny if the person who's telling you that's your favorite video. You're like, yeah, I closed my eyes through the whole thing. It's my favorite video you've ever done. Yeah, I still don't know what you look like. <laughs> I still don't know what you <laughs> look like. But you like. sound But great. it's my favorite video, though. Yeah. And I'm not even singing, so they just like the way I sound when I speak. Right. Yeah. All right, Rick, we're going to let you get out of here. See, I I'm love out. you, and I appreciate you appreciate doing the show. You. Thank you, Rick. You're welcome. Good luck with your business. Oh, thank you. All Hopefully right. you'll help me with it. We'll do what we can. Ah, thank y'all so much for listening to the Marty Ray Project Chats. And a big thank you to Rode for supplying the sound with Rodecaster Pro. Whether you like what you heard or hated what you heard, subscribe and rate us anyway. Let us have it.